You're listening to Booth One, your podcast destination for popular culture and current events, where we explore the art of lively conversation. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, and we have a very special episode for you this week on Booth One. I have the privilege of welcoming to our studio Sister Helen Prejean, one of this country's most recognizable and influential advocates against capital punishment and author of the book Dead Man Walking. She's in town in support of an initiative called the Quality of Mercy Project and to attend a production of Tim Robbins' play adaptation of Dead Man Walking. We're going to learn more about her extraordinary efforts in this cause and hopefully learn a few things about the person who is Sister Helen as well. Uh, joining us in the studio is Leslie Brown, the executive director of the Piven Theater Workshop right here in Evanston, Illinois, where Dead Man Walking is being presented. First, a couple of background biographical notes about Sister Helen. Sister Helen was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and is a Roman Catholic nun, a member of the Congregation of St. Joseph, and a leading American advocate for the abolition of the death penalty. Her efforts began in New Orleans, Louisiana, in 1982. An acquaintance asked her to correspond with convicted murderer Elmo Patrick Saunier, located in the Louisiana State Penitentiary on death row. Saunier was sentenced to death by electrocution. She visited Saunier in prison and agreed to be his spiritual advisor in the months leading up to his execution. The experience gave Prejean greater insight into the process involved in executions, and she began speaking out against capital punishment. Prejean has since ministered to many other inmates on death row and witnessed several more executions. Dead Man Walking, a biographical account of her relationship with Saunier and other inmates on death row, served as the basis for the feature film, also an opera and, as I mentioned, a play written by Tim Robbins. In the film, Sister Helen was portrayed by Susan Sarandon, who won an Academy Award for her performance, also starring Sean Penn. Although Prejean herself was uncredited, she made a minor cameo as a woman in the candlelit vigil scene outside Louisiana State Penitentiary. Prejean's second book, The Death of Innocence, an eyewitness account of wrongful executions, was published in December 2014. In it, she tells the story of two men whom she accompanied to their executions. She believes that both men were innocent. The book also examines the recent history of death penalty decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States. Due to scheduling problems, my partner Roscoe was not able to join me for this interview, but I think you'll see that Sister Helen is a force of nature who really doesn't require much prompting in expressing herself. Sister Helen, thank you so very much for joining us on Booth One this morning. Glad to we be here. We so appreciate it. Uh, we're here with uh, Sister Helen Prejean and the executive director of the Piven Theater Workshop right here at Evanston, Leslie Brown. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. It's good to be here. Leslie, I'm going to start with you first. Tell us about the Quality of Mercy Project, which Sister Helen is here in Evanston to support, and about what you'll be attending this evening uh, at the Piven Theater Workshop. The Quality of Mercy Project was born out of uh, the production of Dead Man Walking. Two years ago, I think to the day, we got the rights from Tim Robbins to produce the play. And he, in the way that he's sort of presented the play throughout universities and high schools, um, there's always sort of an educational component that's built into it. 
And since we are not a part of a university, we thought, well, let's reach out into the community. And so we connected with five community partners, the Moran Center, Evanston Art Center, Literature for All of Us, Evanston Township High School, and Chicago Innocence Center. And we got together about a year ago and we started thinking, what could we do to spark community conversation with this play so that uh, people can experience the work and then go out into the community and learn more about the issues and the themes and everything that, uh, that arises from the production. And had you been speaking with Sister Helen about this project all, all along? I reached out to Sister Helen's office. Sister and Margaret. Sister She's Margaret. the gatekeeper. She is the She's gatekeeper. The, yeah. I see. Oh my gosh. I would love to meet her one day. Um, she is remarkable. So she called, I, I sent a letter and she called me and she said, now what is this that we're doing? Mm-hmm. And I said, I explained all of these organizations are coming together to create panels, discussions, and um, film screenings, and we want to really delve into this work uh, around the production. And she said, well, I've never heard of that before. She said, I think Sister Helen might like this. Because Tim has not given the play over to anybody who was not a school. It was a school play project. This is Tim Robbins. This is Tim Robbins, the, the director of Dead Man Walk yeah. in the mm-hmm. film. Yeah. 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 Great. And and so uh, Sister Margaret presented it to you and you said, that yeah, sounds well, what, fantastic. Yeah, well, we get in the request and we pull out a calendar and so we just see and block me off and then I forget about it until it's time and then I have something called a blue folder and I have it in my bag and I get, go to the first gig in some city then I open it up to see where I'm going next. Oh, I'm going to Evanston, Illinois. What is this? And then I read all about it, and then it was like fresh. Well, we're so happy to have you here. What a treat and an honor to have you in Evanston. I know you've spent some time in Chicago, quite a lot of yeah. time in Chicago. DePaul but University. In, in, has the archives the of Dead Man I, I, I was aware of that. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic donation. You know a lot, Gary. Oh, well, I've done my research. Sister, let me get right to the core of the matter here. You've been an advocate for the abolishment of capital punishment in America for 35 years now, approximately, and it's been over 20 years since the book and the film, as you mentioned, Leslie, of Dead Man Walking, the eyewitness account of the death penalty that sparked a national debate, is the full name of the book. It's been uh, 20 years since, over 20 years since those were released. What kind of forward strides towards eliminating the death penalty have been, in your opinion, the most significant in recent history? We in the United States were at the lowest point ever, the lowest number of executions, lowest number of death penalties being given out, and there have been a number of factors. 156 wrongfully convicted people, and now we know we thought we had the perfect court system and you'd never have an innocent person. And then there are two people they're, they're exploring now in Texas who were actually executed, who were innocent. So it's been a sobering thing for the public. When we, when we started hot shot down this, roaring down this road when the Supreme Court put the death penalty back in 1976, we thought we'd never make a mistake and we thought it would be a deterrence. What would be a better deterrent to somebody thinking of killing somebody that they might lose their life and then that could save lives? Now we know it has nothing to do with deterrence. You look at the track record of the states that have used the execution the most, they have the most violence and crimes in their cities. It's had no effect. It's so arbitrary and capricious and selective in its application that it has no deterrent effect. Then another factor has been the cost. 
At first, people said, you, can't, you gotta be kidding me that putting somebody in prison for life, three hots in a cot for the rest of their life is less expensive than just getting a few chemicals and knocking them off. It, everybody thought it'd be more expensive to have life imprisonment than to have the death penalty. And, and I didn't know this before I got involved either. I had no idea how, how the machinery of death to set it up in the practice of it, you gotta build a special death row, you have to have special personnel, you generally don't let death row inmates work in any way. And the court system, you have two trials. One is just for guilt or innocence, and then the second one is just for sentencing, and the sentencing trial, if you got a decent defense, that will do all the mitigation to show why this person shouldn't be killed, can last longer than the other, and then you start the appeals. Now, normally when a lawyer has a client, they might do one appeal and then let it go, but when they're gonna kill your client, you use every avenue of appeal you can, all the way down to the morning of the execution, writing last minute things up to the Supreme Court, don't kill my client. And so that's why it's so expensive. And these take years and years to Oh, the average the wait for process. an execution in California is 25 years. 25 years. If they execute, they have 744 people on death row in California. They have a bigger death row than Texas. Now, Texas kills people quicker. They've killed over 500 people. And they have people in the pipeline, which means they've finished all their court, and so they're just waiting to be executed. And boy, Texas does it. I mean, they, and so they say, well, and it's part of the southern states. You gotta understand the patterns of things. I've heard that's the definition of real intelligence. Mm. It's not like knowing a lot of facts and trivia. A computer can do that. It's to see the patterns in mm -hmm. things. That mm -hmm. is what intelligence is. And we look and we just see almost 8 out of 10, 75% of all actual executions have happened in the 10 southern states that practice slavery. Mm. It has always been. Since slaves were disenfranchised, white people were scared, penal punishment much harsher for blacks than for whites, and it's been that way ever since. So the ones who wanted the death penalty back after the Supreme Court put it back, took, took it away in 1972 with the southern states, angry because the feds had come in and desegregated and they wanted their payback and there were moves, you bring the death penalty back and it's the states' rights and feds and all this stuff that enters into the history of why we still have the death penalty and who's doing it the most. Speaking of the Supreme Court, and I know that you're very well versed in the history of Supreme Court decisions uh, around the death penalty. With the Supreme Court in current flux, <laughs> to, to say the least, after the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, how do you envision the appointment of the next Supreme Court justice will impact your work and that of millions of other Americans against capital punishment? And more specifically, are there cases in the pipeline that you're aware of that are going to come before this, this newly formed Supreme Court within the next year or two? Well, first, with God's calling Scalia unto herself, things change radically. The tilt of the court automatically is different because there were always four votes. Alito, Scalia, Roberts, 
Clarence Thomas, always four votes are going to be for the death penalty in every case and refuse to look at it. So the, the task was always to get that extra, I mean, it, you had to summon up a majority and it was always hard. Now it's three with the tilt in the court more away from the death penalty. And recently we have a huge thing of Justice Breyer's opinion in Glossop v. Gross where he really laid out all the ways that the death penalty is broken and he finds it unconstitutional in its practice. The theory's always been great. We're only going to get the worst worse in practice. So he's put that out there, and all that now is in the atmosphere of the court. We can only go up in the sense that in the last 15, 20 years, every appointment has been conservative, except for the recent ones uh, under Obama. So we're moving now more towards, see, it's all in how you interpret the Constitution. Absolutely. People say, oh, well, I, like Justice Scalia, I take him on big time in my book, The Death of Innocence, my second book. He goes duck hunting, used to go duck hunting, with my brother Louis. And Louis's not political at all. Louis doesn't like any kind of arguments. He's just very pious, had his rosary in a duck blind. He and Scalia got along really well mm -hmm. in their faith. Pray, um, praying for ducks? That the ducks fly high? Yeah, or, or low. <laughs> yeah, however you need the ducks. I guess so. But, but I'm in Death of Innocence, I talk about two people I come into execution who were innocent. And Justice Scalia was the fifth vote, his hand, and the fifth vote killed both of them. And uh, so I was writing the book, Death of Innocence, and talking about these people. And I met Justice Scalia in the New Orleans airport coming back from a duck hunt with Louie. And I was getting into the constitutional discourse, you know, to bring the people through it, because it's our Constitution. Supreme Court doesn't own the Constitution. You got eyes, you look at it, you interpret it, and we all interpret words and text according to our reality, our, our experience, people we know. And so I confronted him in the airport, and that opened up the chapter, and you know, the ending of the book, and taking him on in the arguments about how he interprets the Constitution. That because the framers were for the death penalty. We should be for the death penalty. He'd go back to 18th century dictionaries to interpret things like uh, Atkins, that we shouldn't kill mentally challenged people. Mm -hmm. Yes. He looked up an 18th century dictionary what idiot means. And he said, well, it means you can't make change with currency and you don't know the name of your mom and daddy. These people aren't idiots. They know right from wrong. And so he would allow for no mitigation because the framers, he said. It was a very significant loss to the Supreme Court. I mean, if, if any of the justices were to go meet their maker, as you say, Justice Scalia was maybe the most significant linchpin um, of this nine Supreme Court justices. As I as I asked, did, are there are there any cases that you're aware of that are going to challenge um, the justices in in the coming session or next year? Well, this this is the big thing, see, and lawyers are being very wary because of Breyer's opinion. That it, where he laid it out, all the things that are wrong, like, for example, 2% of prosecutors in this country are responsible for 65% of all the people on death row. You have these pockets 
where you have these people that go after the death penalty, because it's up to discretion of prosecutors. That's one of the reasons it's broken. And you put those prosecutors in a certain killing culture, like in the Deep South, like in Oklahoma, where Bob Macy got 54 death penalties, 54 notches in his prosecutor's belt, just on his own. So they're going to look for cases, and they might be three cases that come in together that'll present the same issues that were in the Furman decision in 72 that led them to overturn it. They'll show how decisions were made that were arbitrary completely. This one was selected. They'll probably show the race in it. Overwhelmingly, you see that in this county, when white people are the victims, the death penalty is sought, whereas if you're a person of color, there are plenty places where where that's going on. So to be, and then you'll show that because the person was indigent, they got poor defense. It's been very hard in this court to show, you know, in, in ineffectiveness of counsel. The Supreme Court tightened up all those constitutional protections, made it very difficult. So it's going to be, I think, a constellation of things that will come into the court. And they're, they're weighing it very carefully because what you don't want to do is send a case in, then they make a decision, and, and it'll set you back because then you'll have to, you know, it's just an amazing Byzantine process very of much being so. able to uh, I'm to a bit of a student of the Supreme Court. Are you? These things do sometimes take a wrong turn if you're not mm. careful about it. You can't just bring any case you want just because, you know, if you, as you say, if you lose, it's two steps backwards, and oh, you right. want to be going one step forward. Let me change uh, tack a little bit. Uh, when you're not out there doing the Christian work that you're doing, um, what sorts of things do you enjoy for entertainment or relaxation? I know you're, you probably see a lot of dead man walking productions, either the play or the opera. People would like to have you in to do that. You're seeing one tonight, as a matter of fact. Are, are you a fan of the performing arts in general? And, and, and what are your favorite kinds of things to see, if you are? The arts are extremely important in any society to help us in our culture, in our society, to have the arts pull the curtain back for us to see and enter into experiences we wouldn't otherwise have. And when I came out of the execution chamber for the first time, accompanying Pat Saunier, since then there have been five others I've accompanied, I knew the first thing I realized, middle of the night, Louisiana just killed a man in the electric chair, threw up, and I said, the people are never going to get close to this. So I've been a witness. I've got to tell the story. The book of Dead Man Walking came out in 93. And so when Susan Sarandon called and asked to meet me, we went to the Bontown restaurant and got some good Cajun food. <laughs> she had read the book, and she knew we needed a new kind of film. And, and I knew that you have to get it out wide to the public, and you have to use every way of bringing people through this story. And that film is one of the most powerful things. Opera's very, very powerful because you have live drama and you have music. Which, which really takes the audience on a, on a deeper journey with the fullness of art. But you got to trust your artist, see? And people told me, now, Helen, you be careful because you are none. You don't know anything about films and these movie stars and all these people. You make sure when you sign a contract with people that you can trust them. So I trusted the artist. I trusted Susan 
and, and just her long track record of standing for human rights and good things. And I met Tim, and I trusted Tim. And we, it, that, it was a miracle that movie happened. The book came out, the hardback, in 93, when everybody in their cat in the United States was for the death penalty. Mm. In the 90s, with the time of biggest support, I think in 96, 78% of the American public supported the death penalty. In the Deep South, it was like close to 90%. So the hardback of Dead Man came out in 93. Susan read it in 94. By the end of 95, we had a first-class film that then got four nominations mm -hmm. for the Academy Awards. And Susan, who had been nominated four other times, got the death penalty. I mean, got the death penalty. <laughs> 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 uh, got the, her performance was better than that. Got the, got the Oscar. She did, Academy Award. And I teased her because it was hard for her to be a nun. Uh, as you can imagine, she was only been a, one, a nun once in a movie, and after that, she did a real sexy film with Paul Newman because she didn't want that nun thing to stick like it did to mm -hmm. Julie Andrews after, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. after. And so it's been a miracle because to get four nominations for the Academy Awards, 1.3 billion people were watching that night. So four times they heard about Dead Man Walking, and then Bruce Springsteen got to sing because Tim also did this album, Sony, Dead Man Walk, and Bruce Springsteen did the title song of it. He performed it. So four times the world is hearing Dead Man Walking, and it, it went into the vernacular right away. There was a cartoon in the New Yorker like a couple of weeks after it, and there was a, a man coming for his coffee early in the morning, and his wife sitting on the couch with a friend. You see him all scruffy and all, heading toward his coffee, and she goes, dead man walking. <laughs> and it got into the vernacular. Yeah, you can't ask for uh, a better publicity than that or a wider, wider reach than the Academy Awards. And as you say, dead man walking is part of the vernacular now. I don't think you could find anybody in America who doesn't know what that refers to. Let me ask you uh, again, what you personally, what do you do for entertainment and relaxation? Everybody must have a little bit of R&R time. Here's, here's your complete list of fun to have as a nun. Okay. <laughs> Number one. Good friends, parties, getting together, talking. Drinking scotch, playing cards, seeing good films and talking about them, cooking good food and having people over and eating it together. Are you a good cook? Yeah. I'm dynamite. Cajun, eh? Well, yeah. You know, people think Cajun is just hot, hot food. It's just well-seasoned mm -hmm, food, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so anyway, like good fish, you know, the way Commander's Palace does at New Orleans, you know, and you get those fillets, and then you, then you season those little fillets. Don't have them too thick. And you get some good Tony Chasserets, salt and pepper, and that's with a little cayenne, but not too much. You don't want it too hot. And then you, like, lightly dust it with that flour, and then in your pan, just very light, you have a little olive oil, a little butter. Pan fry those pan fry those things and then when mm. you turn them over on that second side you put lemon on it and fresh parsley and put it right on the dish and you have all your other food waiting so that fish can be hot well that's all the time we have today sister helen because <laughs> i'm gonna go make some fish now you've got you've got me all hungry what what besides dead man walking what, what's your favorite film i love Fargo, I thought, was just an excellent. i love the coen <laughs> yeah, brother yeah 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 oh brother where art thou 
is a wonderful, wonderful, a beautiful film. movie, and another great soundtrack. Yes, indeed, fantastic yes, indeed. stuff. I mean, yeah. I love humor too. I want to add about humor. You should cultivate anecdotes and jokes that are funny. I think humor may be the little mini practice of resurrection because it gives you a different juxtaposition to see things in perspective no matter how tough things are. Mm -hmm. And I've found, you know, in doing this work for human rights, the best folks who last, deep thinkers, activists that just stay on it, have a sense of humor. You don't have many dour people that don't that do this kind of work, I find, are artists that don't have a sense of humor. You gotta have humor. Uh, yeah, without question, you have yeah. to have a you sense of humor. Gotta play with reality a little bit. Certainly. You gotta be playful. What groups of people do you enjoy speaking to the most? I know that you talk extensively to to people all over the country, all over the world. What what do you find to be your most rewarding? talks or presentations? I can just start with yesterday in the Evanston Township School, high school. What we, what did we do, Leslie? Five presentations. Five, five presentations. Back to back. Back to back of these kids. So, Leslie, I'll, I'll let Leslie speak a little bit here. Why, why so I not? Can, I'll rest my voice and sip my water. Go, Leslie. What happened at that school? I loved it. <laughs> it it was it was a magical day. I, I don't think Sister Helen w knew exactly what she was getting into, but I, I couldn't believe she just walked in and said, "All right, what are we doing? Let's let's do it." And uh, from the moment we walked in, she just drew people to her. Everybody wanted to see her and meet her and shake her hand. Classroom after classroom joined in first the little theater, and then later in the day we moved upstairs to this larger classroom. And hundreds of kids came in and they heard the story and the stories that she shared were amazing. And each presentation was different. So um, there was always a little extra anecdote or there was some other kind of bit of information. I think what was beautiful was watching those students lean in and they were quiet and mesmerized and they asked good questions when they felt a, you know a lack of fear to to raise their hands and ask good questions I mean I think it really changed a lot of their uh, perspectives and in, in fact that day many of the students in the school were observing a day of silence in support of LGBTQ people who do not feel that they have a voice in our community. Kids always surprise you, don't they? They do. And we were talking about that on mm -hmm. the way back to the, when I was um, taking Sister Helen on to her next event. They've grown up in a way where they're not phased by things that the rest of society seem to be up in arms about. I, I told Sister Helen a story about a child in eighth grade who transitioned and um, came out as a boy in his eighth grade. And the parents were terrified. They thought, oh my gosh, you know, there's going to be bullying. There's going to be sort of all these sort of terrible things that happen. And when he came home that day, he said, no, it was fine. All the kids just accepted it. The parents were concerned, but the kids, they're living different lives now. They're open to more progressive ideals and to, to sort of accept people of all different mm. backgrounds. Mm. Yeah. We were speaking, Sister Helen, about your archival material from Dead Man Walking that you 
donated uh, all of this to DePaul University, which is right here in Chicago. Why did you choose DePaul uh, to be so honored with this collection of, of be- documents? Because I really trust the Vincentian priests that, that have the school. And their founder, St. Vincent de Paul, was really big into the, being with poor people and justice. And the Vincentians at de Paul have picked up that mission, so I knew I could trust them. And um, so it's, it's an excellent archive. They, they're getting a traveling trunk ready. I told them about being at uh, Evanston Township High School yesterday. And this traveling trunk, see, they have everything in it. They have my original writings, the drafts of Dead Man Walking, and then my editor, Jason Epstein's, his suggestions. They see a book being put together, Dead Man Walking. Then they see the letters to Tim Robbins and mm-hmm. Susan Sarandon. Wow. And all the stuff that went into the making of the film, and then also the play, and then the second book, Death of Venice. So they have the makings of how you write a book and how important an editor is in helping you shape a book. And then they have the film, and then they have the opera, then they have pictures of the Academy Awards, they have all the things that happened around the film and the opera and the play of Dead Man Walking. So it's just great, and they're getting it all digitally so that you can actually see the stuff. See the first letter that I wrote to Pat Sonier on Death Row, and the letter he wrote back Mm. that got everything started. It's the first story in Dead Man Walking. It's fascinating. I'm going to have to try to get a look at those archives. Yeah, you want to go there, Gary. Are are they in a place where you apply to look at them, or are they on uh, public, not display, but are they available? It's in the special collections. You just go in a library and just ask, and you go in, and then they'll, they'll bring it out for you. You know, they're wonderful people that that are there. It's been a wonderful collaborative process. Speaking of writing, I was looking at your itinerary uh, for the next, oh, several months. You're going an awful lot of places. It's quite remarkable. I saw that you're going to the Ghost Ranch uh, Retreat Center at some point in, in August. Um, Are you sure I'm going there, Gary? Who'd you talk to? Well, you talk I, to Sister Margaret? How I do you know this? I missed Sister Margaret, <laughs> but I saw it on your website. Then I must be going. You've been there before. Do you do you use the Ghost Ranch like a lot of people do for a, a writing retreat or a place to contemplate uh, or meditate? Meditation is crucial to just daily living because if I don't live out of my center of my soul, my deep soul, then all the stimulus coming at me from every side and I'm just act, react. So partly to pray, of course, and to meditate and but for writing, I go away to a cave and I hide away and I don't tell people where I'm going because you have to have big hunks of time because the writing process is a lengthy process for me. Mm. I'm a gritty writer. I write intensively. And so the first draft, I can always write something, but the first draft is almost never the one because you work with it. And even the musicality of the words and the way you the diction you use, the shaping of the story. You know, the reason those kids were mesmerized yesterday in that high school is the stories are so powerful. And Susan Sarandon in her afterword of Death Man Walking in the 20th anniversary edition said that I like to take roles of women. They will never end up as victims, but roles of women who make mistakes or who get in over their head. 
and clearly this nun getting involved with the death penalty was in over her head. <laughs> yes. And so that's part of it, too. And so when I go to tell stories, see, I can just take people with me through my experiences of not knowing anything, getting involved with poor people in the same time as housing projects and African-American people becoming my teachers because I was in such white privilege and then getting a letter, then going to see the man on death row, then seeing he's a human being, believing in his human rights, then meeting the victim's family whose kids were killed in cold blood, shot in the back of the head and left in a sugarcane field, and their anger and their rage. All of that's in the story. And editor Jason Epstein, I credit him for anybody ever heard hearing about Dead Man Walking. He helped me shape that story. And in the first writing, the first draft, he looked at it and he said, Helen, you wait far too long to talk about the crime. You're all into the human rights of this person you meet and on death row. But what did he do? And who did he kill? And whose life is plunged in trauma and grief? If within the first 10 pages of this book, you don't deal with the horror of that crime and the killing of two innocent teenage kids, nobody's going to read your book. Because you're a Catholic nun, you're a spiritual advisor, they're going to think, well, she's all into Jesus and forgiveness, and they can expect every religious platitude out of your mouth. And he said, you got to stand there before the killing of those two innocent kids, and they have to know you feel the outrage like they do. And then your task in writing this book is to gradually bring people over from the outrage of that killing to write into the execution chamber to see the outrage of what it means to take a person, render them defenseless, and take them out and kill them. That's a brilliant, brilliant editorial um, idea, and I, I think he was absolutely quite right. Did you? Are you happy with the way that turned out? Well, I, we'd never have heard of Dead Man Walking. It had been the '90s were the time where we had the highest number of executions. We had 98 executions in 1999. And every, it was full blast on the death penalty. Everybody thought it was a good idea. Yeah, it's going to turn, all those reasons. And here comes a book in the 90s by a Catholic nun who's a, a spiritual advisor, somebody on death row. What are the chances? And then, you know, I, I believe what Goethe, Goethe said something. It's kind of like my mantra. He said, look, when we are deeply committed to a noble cause, and unrelenting in our efforts to follow that. Providence moves for us, and resources make their way to us. And that's what happened with the book and the movie. But to just face the enormous tragedy, I've accompanied six human beings to execution, and I watched as they were killed in front of my eyes. There is so much suffering, just in prison in general, of throwing away human beings, much less putting people in a six-and-a-half-foot by eight-and-a-half-foot cell for 20 years and then taking them out and killing them. That is going on in our society. Mm. And the reason I wrote Dead Men Walking, one of the reasons is I could see the day that there are going to be museums and blue velvet ropes with all the killing instruments, the lethal injection gurney, the gas chamber, the, the electric chair, and kids are going to be in that museum with their mamas or their daddies, and they're going to say, Mama, what is that? And she'll say, well, son, there used to be a day when the, we felt that the best thing to do in this country was to kill criminals who had done really bad crimes. And 
And they would go, wow, we did that? It's just like we go to slavery museums or whatever. You go, wow, we did that? And the key thing is, and this is why we need art, it's why we need books, why we need you, this podcast, is it's, it's hidden from our eyes. It's not, I've found, with these thousands and thousands of talks, to I don't know how many people in the American public, that we're wedded to the death penalty. We just don't reflect deeply. And if we don't have the arts, if we don't have books, if we don't have conversations like this to bring us more deeply into things, we do things and let it be done in our name and don't you know, blink an eye or lose any sleep over it. Mm-hmm. You joined the uh, religious order when you were quite young, um, 16, 17, Joseph, 18. 18 years old. Growing up in Baton Rouge, um, Louisiana, you, right? you were a child. This might be a strange question, but we've asked this of some of our guests before, and I always am fascinated with the answer. When you were a, a, young, a young girl, a young child growing up, what, what kinds of things did you pretend to be? I never pretended to be a ballet dancer, I can tell you that. <laughs> you know what? I liked cowgirls. They went in and got stuff done. Yeah. I've always been that kind of activist type. And, of course, we had great nuns in high school. You could see all the power with those teachers and those young people in, in the school yesterday here in Evanston, you know. And they were, they were great women. They were full of faith. And they were very humorous. And huge intellects taught us how to think. And I said, I want to do that. I never did picture myself like marrying one little man and having one little family. I wanted to go wide. And I joined the sisters. Then Vatican II happened in the Catholic Church. And nobody took that bit in their teeth of Vatican II and ran with the changes like nuns. And it was all about developing your mind and yourself. Yourself, you can mm. be a self, but you you have strong support in a community of women that are doing great stuff. I I grew up Catholic, uh, and we had Dominican nuns when I was in grammar school. They were smart, but um, as I remember, uh, uh, we're they gonna were, hear some bad stories. They were they were mean. <laughs> they were mean. <laughs> they were a little mean. Oh, I hate mean. Sister nuns. Pius, Sister Ludovica. Then I went to high school, and I I went to an all boys Catholic high school where we had we had brothers. We had Marist brothers, um, Marist from the upstate New York, the order, and they were great. They were all very nice. <laughs> That's good. So I'm very I'm glad familiar. you had both testaments, Old yeah. Testament, New. I have another question for you that we've asked guests before, and again, I'm, I'm always interested in the answer. You travel a great deal, so you, this might be very significant for you. If you could have one thing delivered to your doorstep every morning, no matter where you are, one thing, like a newspaper or milk, what kind of thing would you like to have every morning? A concise book review of the latest books coming out either in philosophy, theology, if that could be delivered to my daughter. Sort of like a briefing of here's what's yeah. coming and a here's crazy. what these are about. Here's a book that's out. Here's the significant. And on, on politics, on everything, because you've got to understand the culture in which you live because we're immersed in history and in culture. See, for a long time, along with that cowgirl thing, I should have added the other thing is I wanted to be a saint. I wanted to be holy. I wanted to be able to be in communion with God. I still, that thirst, it's really in all of us that we give it different names. And 
And so, but we have a lot of things pulling at us because we're so activists, so we don't meditate. We don't take time for solace. I'm just learning how to breathe in meditation. I mean, just <laughs> breathing, just four breaths. Stop, take four breaths. Uh, and that's really important too, uh, to me. But the whole thing of how, how do we develop soul stature? How do we develop depth in our souls? How do we get in touch with the deeper stream of truth of how all life is connected and how when something happens to one of us, it happens to all of us that Martin Luther King understood, all the, the great leaders understood. And so you have to till that soil of your soul and you have to develop it. So to lead a balance to whole life, holiness is really wholeness. And that, the deepest connection is that we are all brothers and sisters and all connected, and that we're connected to Earth, to the planet. What's happening to this planet is a direct result of our lifestyles and what we do. But you can go your whole life and not know that. And you can pollute and you can waste water and you throw plastic things away, get things in plastic bottles, all that, because you're disconnected, don't know the deep connection between things. And the meeting of other human beings, the, like this dialogue we're having. I don't know if you feel alive. I feel very alive meeting Leslie. It makes us come alive. And then when we look at the prison system, the throwing away of lives, putting people in solitary confinement, we're killing them. We're killing each other. And it's the separation that enables these injustices to keep going. But when you wake people up and you get it, I found out about the American public. It's not that they were so wedded to death penalty that they had never had anybody bring them closely to it. So that's what the book and the film and the opera. And I'm writing a book now, the third book, called River of Fire. And it's the spiritual journey that led me to death row because the spiritual is underneath. It's the underpinning. It's the root system of everything that we do. And if I could, I'd just like to say the prelude that I have in that book, because it just might be able to bring us into the dimension I'm trying to talk about now. Absolutely. Of the deep soul part. So it's called River of Fire, and it's my spiritual memoir, my journey, starting as a child in a Catholic family, going to liturgy, learning to pray, all of that. And the, but the prelude in the book is going to be this. They killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him to a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act because he had killed. No religious leaders protested the killing that night. But I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And now here is an account of how I came to be in the killing chamber that night and the spiritual currents that drew me there. I'm going to take a writing sabbatical to finish that book, and I'll, hopefully it will be published in 2018. Okay. Your, your remarks and that uh, preface uh, remind me a bit of our mutual friend, Steve Earle, 
and his Steve wonderful, Bird. wonderful song from the soundtrack album of Dead Man Walking, Alice uh, Unit, Alice Unit, Unit One. One. Oh man, isn't Steve Earle great? Isn't he great? Yeah, we saw him recently in New York. We were in New York in the fall, and he's a remarkable human being. Yes, he's, he he's had, had some journeys. He has he had tells. a journey. Yes, indeed. Quite, quite something. L- Leslie, uh, where can we learn more about the Quality of Mercy Project? I realize it's sort of a several months long thing. Where can people go to find out a little bit more about it? Is there a website? Yes, absolutely. You can find out information about the Quality of Mercy Project and the production run of Dead Man Walking on our website at Piven Theater org. Fantastic. And, and Sister Helen, wh- where can our listeners go to learn more about the fight against capital punishment and to find more information about your efforts specifically? Uh, I know you have a website, correct? Yeah, yeah. and uh, Sister a Facebook he- SisterHelen.org? Well, SisterHelen.org will take you to the webpage, but you want to go to Sister Helen Prejean, looks like Prejean, P-R-E-J-E-A-N, to get on the Facebook page, and we put a lot of effort into that, into social media. It'll tell, for instance, the story of Richard Glossop, an innocent man in Oklahoma, who asked me to be there as during his execution. So I got involved with Susan Sarandon, Pope Francis, Richard Branson of Virgin Airline, moveon.org. And that world attention, I have no doubt, saved Richard's life. Oklahoma was so ready to kill him. His name is Glossop. It looks like gossip with an L in it. Richard Glossop. His whole story and my involvement in in his life, trying to save his life, it's, it's, it's a good Facebook page. I got good people to help me. Do you recall our our former Illinois governor, George Ryan? Do you recall his speech about the moratorium on the death penalty? Could you speak about that for a moment or two? Uh, What were your your thoughts about it? How did that make you feel? Well, you got to know, I knew him, and I was with him at different points in his own journey. This was a real journey of conversion for this man. This was not a political thing. You want to get political points. You don't commute sentences. That's people. true. This is you not, don't call for more torment. This is not though. a political, this is political suicide almost to deal with this topic. Yeah, that's the way they've been picturing it now Indeed. at their beginning. They may be moving away from seeing it as the third rail of politics because they're seeing because they're following the people, the people begin to go, why do we keep doing this? But George Ryan was an extraordinary man. He was so real. His integrity of soul was, was real. And I know they got him on something. I tried to testify as a character witness at his trial to just say that, that all the depth that was in this man and goodness, and of course, we didn't prevail, and they put him in prison even when his wife was dying of cancer. But what he did in Illinois sparked the beginning of a change in this country because I think it happened in 2000. It was around 2000 or 2001 that by the time the 13th innocent person brought, was brought into George Ryan's office, and he had been a fully supportive of the death penalty, helped bring it back to Illinois, he said to himself, this thing is broken. He recognized structurally it's broken. And that gradually he met Anthony Porter, who was one of the innocent people saved by the students at Northwestern, the journalism students, Yes. who went in and did the investigation, never done, because he got poor defense. Because I mean, if you're poor, 
you have overworked, underpaid attorneys with no resources, and the prosecutors do slam dunks. And so 13 people, and boy, it was a journey of his conscience, because when he made that decision of conscience, he sent bills of reform to Illinois legislature. They wouldn't do them, and then he was led. He said, I can't leave office. I have the power, and he commuted all the sentences, including one of the men on death row who had killed in a brutal way his next-door neighbor who was a good friend of his. He said, I certainly can't commute some. And he got a lot of heat for it. You know, some of the victims' families were mad because they've been positioned to go, this is how you get your justice. So I admire the heck out of that man. I still do. And you know what, Gary? Right the year after he did that, you begin to see a irreversible trend that's happened now. Death penalties began to be less. Prosecutors sought them less. The public mood begins to shift because we begin to realize it, conservatives and evangelicals now have really joined the movement. Conservatives who are for minimizing government intrusion in your life to give government the power to decide you die or or you die, you can barely fill the potholes and you're going to put government in charge of deciding when people can live or die. And evangelicals, I've been invited now to speak at two evangelical uh, schools of theology uh, and, and in churches, and that's different because they're looking again. You know, you use the word talking about being a Christian earlier on in our dialogue, and I really wanted to talk about the meaning of that. Like Justice Scalia called himself a Christian, a Catholic. But he said, the more Christian a nation is, the more they believe in the death penalty because they know we're supposed to be punished for our sins. Pain comes with death, and uh, it's just supposed to be a part of it. So his idea of Jesus and Christianity couldn't be more diametrically different from my own belief. Jesus, who that Pope Francis is showing us, trying to bring our creaking, institutional, doctrinaire, Catholic church out of the buildings, into the margins. He said the church ought to be a field hospital where the wounded are, where people have no voice the marginated. That's the Jesus I believe in, and that's the Christianity I believe in. And I got to meet Pope Francis around this man, Richard Glossop, to deliver a letter to Pope Francis, who was instrumental in helping to save Richard Glossop's life. And when you meet him, it's just, re- he's all in. His question to me when we met on January 21st in Rome, he looked at me searchingly and he went, yesterday, because he was aware that there was a man in Texas, Masterson was his last name, who was supposed to be executed, and the Pope had tried to save his life. And it was the day before I met him on the 20th of January, and he looks at me and he goes, yesterday? And I said, they killed him, Pope Francis. And he just lowered his eyes. He said, I pray, I pray. And so he's spoken before our Congress. He's spoken before the United Nations calling for an end to the death penalty. The Catholic Church has been on quite a journey. We started out with a a position, well, the state has a right to take life for grievous crimes. Pretty much the same thing prosecuting attorneys say, this grave a grievous crime. 
and, and we've moved. And that story's in Death of Innocence, my second book of the dialogue I got to have with Pope John Paul as well. But Francis is a miracle in the Catholic Church. Everybody loves Francis. Now, real conservative people that are hooked into that we have to, certain things are morally wrong and a lot of things we need to change. We need to change about gays. We need to change about women in the Catholic Church. But the way things change, when a pot boils, it's not a great big fat bubble that just comes up in the pot. It's a lot of little bitty bubbles at the bottom of the pot, and then they boil up. And that's what happens among the people. So the consciousness is changing among the people, and the people are speaking, and that change is going to come in the Catholic Church. It's inevitable that it's going to come in the Catholic Church. And Vatican II, when they defined the church, they gave it a new name. It's not the bishops and not the hierarchy. It's the people. Jesus was among the people. Jesus was a person for the people, especially the most vulnerable. So when you have consciousness changing and people sharing ideas, which is why this is a blessed thing you're doing on this podcast. I mean, maybe it's just, although I can sense your spirit and your soul, that it's all about getting truth out there and getting these diverse voices out there so you can have a real conversation about things. It's essential. It's well, also essential to our democracy. And that's, that is what we try to do on this show. Well, in my, in my book, you, you are a saint. You've achieved. Don't overdo it, Gary. Don't <laughs> overdo it. Well, it's stomp, a, stomp, it's stomp. a long way to go from my lips to God's ear. Uh, but uh, no, no further than mine. And no further than yours. I so, so appreciate you taking the time with us today. Leslie Brown, Executive Director of the Piven Theater Workshop, thank you as well for coming thank by. You. Sister Helen, the best of everything in your endeavors and your continued work. God bless you for what you're doing. Thank you. And I hope you have a great, great rest of your stay here in Evanston. Thank you. It's thank been you. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. And Leslie made it all happen. God bless her, too. Thank you, <laughs> Leslie. <laughs> we hope you found our interview informative, thought-provoking, and enjoyable, and that Sister Helen's unique spiritual power came through to you over the podcast airways. For more information on the Quality of Mercy Project and Piven Theater's production of Dead Man Walking, go to piventheater.org. That's P-I-V-E-N-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org. And to find out where Sister Helen will be appearing next, go to sisterhelen.org or visit her Facebook page at Sister Helen Prejean. That's Prejean, P-R-E-J-E-A-N. If you're lucky, if you're very lucky, she'll be coming to a venue near you. Be sure to tune into Booth One next time as we'll be recording from New York City and our special guest will be none other than the legendary Cheetah Rivera. I'm not kidding. <laughs>